This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, we find ourselves at the start of 2016 with yet another attempt by the Republican-led Congress to repeal the health care law. This is the first time both the House and Senate may find some agreement over a repeal of the ACA, and they plan to time the repeal to precede the president's State of the Union address. Well, Mark, it underscores this deep divide that still exists over the ACA. While congressional Republicans are continuing the fight, Many Republican governors around the country are beginning to sing quite a different tune, capitulating maybe to some of the economic and really the moral realities. Many Republican governors are starting to understand the cost their political stance has had on not just the health of their constituents, but as well on the state coffers. Well, remember, Mark, the Supreme Court 2012 decision upheld the Affordable Care Act, but not the mandate requiring all states to expand Medicaid coverage Many Republican governors chose not to extend that coverage to their poorest residents as a result. The move left millions of Americans still uninsured, and governors left billions of dollars of federal money on the table. Here's an impressive list of Republican governors. Arizona and Arkansas, Indiana, Iowa, Michigan, Nevada, New Jersey, New Mexico, and Ohio have expanded their Medicaid program. And some of their more reluctant colleagues are starting to see the wisdom of such a move. But we have to pay attention to the numbers. For the first time, America's uninsured rate has dipped below 10 percent, and that's thanks to the Affordable Care Act. So as the saying goes, progress but not perfection. And another big influencer in healthcare in 2016 will continue to be the influx of digital health technologies. And we expect to see a dramatic rise in the infiltration of health technology in the traditional healthcare space. And our guest today is focusing his efforts on the dramatic potential of this emerging market. Jeff Williams is the chief operating officer of Apple, and he also oversees the tech giant's foray into the growing healthcare space with Apple Health Kit, Research Kit, and the Apple Watch, creating a powerful opportunity to dramatically scale up research. We also will be hearing from Laurie Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org, who's stopping by and is always on the hunt for misstatements spoken about health policy in the public domain. But no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to chcradio.com. And as always, if you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter because we love hearing from you. We'll get to our interview with Jeff Williams, the Chief Operating Officer of Apple, in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. About 2.5 million Americans have already signed up for coverage in the latest round of open enrollment under the Affordable Care Act. HHS Secretary Burwell saying the new numbers have brought the nation's uninsured rate to below 10 percent for the first time. But problems still persist. Costs are on the rise for health coverage. Insurers are skittish about the lack of healthy younger participants signing up for coverage. And there are rumblings among some big insurers like United Healthcare. They may pull out of the exchanges in the future. The Republican-controlled Congress already aiming for another repeal vote as well. House Speaker Paul Ryan says there must be a full repeal of the law before any Republican alternative can be put in place. The president, meanwhile, ready to use his veto pen if necessary to override any repeal attempt. What's the biggest health threat in coming decades? According to Pew Research and other analysts, antibiotic resistance could be the leading killer globally by 2050. 
The rampant overuse of antibiotics in healthcare, as well as in animal production, leading to the advent of superbugs that elude even the strongest antibiotics. According to a new government-backed report, medicine-resistant infections will kill more people every year than cancer by 2050. Resistant infections have caused an estimated 700,000 deaths globally this year, but scientists warn that number will be around 10 million per year if action isn't taken. They will also cost the world about $100 trillion per year. Opioid abuse is poised to become one of the hot health topics for the coming years as the death toll rises to over 150,000 Americans from either prescription opioids or illegal drugs like heroin. An alarming pattern has also emerged as public health officials begin to delve more deeply into the epidemic. Researchers at Boston Medical found that even those patients who overdosed on opiates and were revived continued to receive their opioid prescriptions. They say it points to a fragmented care delivery system where the primary prescriber may not even know no, the overdose has occurred. The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, as well as the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, are amping up efforts to get the medical community's attention on their role in the opioid abuse epidemic. And the American Cancer Society changed its recommendations for breast cancer screenings in 2015, leading to more confusion about diagnostic guidelines, raising the recommended start time for a baseline mammography at age 45 instead of 40, and only screening every other year after 55 or the age of the end of menopause. Now comes some interesting new evidence on the efficacy of ultrasound as an effective screening tool for women, especially those with dense breast tissue. In a three-year test involving over 2,000 women with dense breast, Mammography was better at detecting calcifications. Ultrasound, however, was better at detecting invasive cancers. I'm Mariano O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. We're speaking today with Jeff Williams, Chief Operating Officer of Apple, overseeing the development of Apple Watch and driving the company's health initiatives, including Research Kit, which is aimed at simplifying medical and health research. Jeff joined Apple in 1998 as head of worldwide procurement, and he played a key role in Apple's entry into the mobile phone market with the launch of the iPhone in 2007. Since 2010, he's overseen Apple's entire supply chain, as well as service and support and social responsibility initiatives. Prior to his tenure at Apple, Mr. Williams worked at IBM for 13 years in both engineering and operational capacities. He earned his master's in mechanical engineering from North Carolina State and his MBA from Duke. Jeff, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Thanks, Mark. Great to be with you. What a great story Apple has since its birth in that California garage in the 80s. Apple's been synonymous with innovation and groundbreaking technology. 30 years ago, getting that first Mac, which was introduced to the public, we've cycled through quite a few consumer products since then, multiple iterations of the Mac, the iPod, the iPhone, the iPad, and the most recent Apple launch is the Apple Watch, which CEO Tim Cook has described as a new intimate way to communicate from your wrist Could you tell our listeners about the genesis of the Apple Watch and how it's advancing? This idea of wearables as the ideal communication device that may help facilitate the advance of medical research as well. Yeah, actually, Mark, you know, I think people think that Apple just picks a new category and peers into the future and then somehow comes up with a revolutionary product. But the process is much more organic. In this case, many years ago, Johnny and the ID team started looking at ideas, how you might interface with a small screen, and we were surprised at how compelling that was. New ideas surfaced, and 
it ultimately ended in, uh, in us producing the Apple Watch. But the process is very organic. And in terms of health and communication, the two biggest things we've seen in terms of response on the watch are actually in those two categories. The, f- the first is people are telling us that the watch helps them be more present. Uh, the fact that they're able to triage their communications quickly has been, hmm. been really helpful. But the biggest impact has is, is actually been on health. Quite honestly, we've been surprised and very inspired. So many people have written to us saying it's helped them lose weight, it's helped them be more active. They were pre-diabetics and have changed course. And even we've gotten a ton of emails where people are saying the watch actually saved their life. First email I got to this effect, I thought this must be somebody joking because uh-huh. the only thing on the, on the Apple Watch from a true medical sensor standpoint is the heart rate sensor, and anybody can get their pulse. You just, you know, you just put two fingers on your wrist and, and watch the clock. But having the information readily available and possibly more important, the fact that it's passively tracked, it's tracked in the background, has proved to be profound in a way we didn't anticipate. We've gotten so many emails where people or their cardiologist have written us and said, this person detected something on their watch and came in and they had a life-threatening situation, and if we had not intervened, they probably would have died. Or the person that goes in and they're sitting on their couch a couple days later, and they look at their iPhone because they have an Apple Watch, and they see that wow, I can see my heart rate throughout the day, and I notice I have this severe drop in blood pressure. They take it back to the doctor, and they say, wow, you've got this, this condition that needs to be addressed. The fact that it's monitored, it gives people a more continuous view versus just a snapshot into their health. And so we, we think we're just at the beginning and couldn't be more excited about the future. Well, you know, as we were preparing to talk to you, we were saying that in some ways it seems like the, the cart came before the horse in the sense that you initially developed the Apple Health Kit as a place for users to be able to store their health data. And other companies certainly had entered this space, the former Microsoft Health Vault and Google Health, which did not survive. And we've had some of uh, those participants from those initiatives on the show who told us it was just too soon for people to feel comfortable storing personal health data in the cloud. What's different about Apple Health Kit and what kinds of health data is it designed to capture? How protected is it? And why do you think the market and people are finally ready for this kind of iteration? I don't know that it was too soon for health data. I think it was the approach was different. We took a completely different approach. In fact, we don't store your information at all. We put the user squarely in control of their health data. Uh, Maybe the best way to describe this, this isn't exactly how it works, but think of your phone. Inside your phone, there's a little safe, a little health kit safe, and you are the safe manager. And so let's say you have a blood pressure cuff, a Bluetooth or a scale or whatever that collects input. You decide whether to let that device write information into your little safe that's on your phone. And then let's say you want to share that data. You've got hypertension and you've got a healthcare provider that wants to track your blood pressure results, you decide whether you want to allow data to leave that little safe on your phone and go to the healthcare provider through their app. And Apple doesn't store your data. It's not out in the cloud. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's the approach. And, but, but you are right. We did not set out with a goal to go into the health data business. It, it really surfaced as a need. We were working on the watch. We needed a place to store data. 
And as we looked at it, we said, wow, I think there's a problem to solve. And so we don't actually think in terms of markets that this is the healthcare market. We, we tend to think in terms of, is there a problem that needs to be solved for people, and can we produce something that's really inspiring and helpful? And, and that's, how, that's how we entered here. And if you connect the dots there, you have 700 million iPhone users around the world, a pretty global, uh, diverse database of potential health information. And after Apple launched its health kit in 2014, you, you realized that this treasure trove of health information was being uh, generated by users. Could you tell our listeners about how did Apple Health Kit lead to Apple Research Kit, and how do all those pieces fit together? The, the real beginning here was we were talking with medical experts because we were building the watch, and we had this idea of Health Kit as a place to store it. And as we were talking with them, the conversations would often drift to problems they faced mm-hmm. in, in research. And as we listened to these problems, we saw a huge opportunity to to help. In fact, there's been such amazing progress mm-hmm. in medical research, but the, the engine that drives that, the studies, that process hasn't changed in decades. And the number one problem that researchers face is, is actually recruiting participants. Right. And, and, and as a result, you can have 20, 50, maybe 100 people in a study if you're lucky. You know, I've always believed people are willing to help, but there's too much friction in the system. If you participate in a research study, you have to usually drive to the, the location, you have to sign legalese documents for consent, and people just don't have the time. And so we saw a huge opportunity to take advantage of the phone, the fact that people have it with them all the time, the fact that it has powerful sensors that can, can aid in research, and, and so we, we started working on ResearchKit. So if I've got it right, any researcher can download and create an app specific to their own area of targeted research, whether it's Parkinson's disease or type 2 diabetes or asthma. The researcher then develops their app, makes it available for free through the App Store. And I understand that some of the early data from a search kit has already led to some significant advances in understanding certain disease pathologies. Who are some of your ground floor medical research partners? Um, how are they choosing to utilize research kit in unique ways and maybe uh, the kinds of advances that you've seen by tapping into these larger pools of research participants? In terms of institutions, we, we've been working with so many around the world, leading ones, Stanford, Oxford, Beijing University, Harvard, John Hopkins, and the list goes on. Maybe the best way to explain research kit is to talk about a disease. Let's talk about Parkinson's. Great. Parkinson's is a movement disorder. It affects millions of people. If you think about how you would study Parkinson's today, you would have to recruit patients. They have to come into the office. They have to have assessments from doctors, and there's problems with that. So, so we did something different. We took advantage of the fact that there are powerful sensors on the phone. One of the prime ways that you study Parkinson's is to have a patient walk in front of you, and the doctor assesses their gait imbalance. With research kit, you can use the accelerometer and the gyroscope on the phone, and a person can just do a walk test, put the phone in their pocket, and conduct a walk test. And they can do it anywhere, not just in the doctor's office. Or they can do a tap test on the phone uh, instead of having the physician assess them while they tap their fingers in the office. And so what this did is it allowed people all over the United States and other parts of the world participate in a study that in a 
prior process would have required them to go to a physical location. And now they can sign up, they can participate, they can do it multiple times a day, you get much better data. And so what ended up happening when this app was released is within 24 hours, it became the largest Parkinson's study amazing. in the history of the great? disease. Just amazing. And, and so and what, what's even more interesting is, as you pointed out, we're already seeing insights. Usually it takes a long time in these studies to see insights. Right. And within the first few months, we're already seeing cases where it's clear that the medication that people are, are taking is not uh, helping their symptoms. We also believe that this app or some modification of it could ultimately diagnose Parkinson's, which, mm-hmm. is, which is just powerful when you think of the democratization of medicine. Right. So we think the potential is huge. Uh, you know, another example is asthma. Mount Sinai wanted to study what are the exacerbators of asthma. Mm-hmm. And Mount Sinai is based in New York. If they were doing this study in the traditional process, they would have had people around New York City. So with research kit, they launch an app, and people all over the United States now are sending information into the research kit study. The GPS on the phone tracks where the person is going. The Bluetooth uh, inhalers that they use for asthma record how often they're using their inhaler. And what's fascinating is now they're studying that different things can cause asthma in different locations. It's not a, exactly. a one-size-fits-all. Exactly. So people in, in Texas... The number one cause of asthma is extreme heat, and in the New Jersey area, it seems to be anger as the number one precipitator hmm. of asthma. And so it's this fascinating way that you can study in a broad population and gain these powerful insights. We're speaking today with Jeff Williams, Chief Operating Officer of Apple, overseeing the development of Apple Watch and driving the company's health initiatives, including Research Kit, which is aimed at simplifying medical and health research. Jeff, there are approximately 50 million Americans now utilizing some health tracking wearable device, and but statistics show that some of these devices tend to sort of fall off. Tell our listeners how you envision the growth of the health sector within Apple, which is still a very small portion of your overall business as American healthcare becomes better equipped with health data interoperability. What do you envision the future will look like from Apple's perspective? Look, we're well aware of the sort of the drop-off of fitness tracking devices, but the, the Apple Watch is different. It's something you interact with, and it does more than that. We, we think Apple Watch marks the end of single-function risk devices. Hmm. In, in the same way, the iPhone marked the end of single-function cell phones. Mm-hmm. The fact that you, you interact throughout the day with your Apple Watch uh, for communications and, and payment and scheduling. So we're just at the beginning of this. We don't, as I mentioned, really think in terms of segments and markets. We think in terms of what do people want. And I'm a strong believer that people want to be more active participants in their health. Mm-hmm. Um, physicians will tell you that having the consumer engaged in their own health will have more impact than any, any medicine they can give them. And, and we think we have a huge opportunity to help do that. Well, Jeff, I noticed certainly some of the areas you've touched on are very near and dear to our work and our our hearts certainly focus on underserved populations, on the democratization of health. And when you think about global health and the world's underserved population, give us a little bit of an insight or understanding, if you will, of how scalable is this technology in advancing global 
health research and improving global health. And how are you going to bring this to bear maybe in some of the third world markets? Yeah, I think that's one of the things that uh, interests us most in Apple. If you think about where medicine is today, and we're big believers in the democratization potential of this, the injustice of fantastic health care available in some parts of the world and others suffering needlessly. And so this is really exciting. Let, let me, I'll give you an example. One of my favorite research kit study apps is on autism and the early detection of autism. This was done by Duke, and Duke approached us and wanted to do a research kit study. The, the goal of the study is to determine whether you can use a cell phone to detect autism at an early age. And when they first approached me, I thought, does it really make a difference mm-hmm. just labeling a, labeling a child early? And it turns out mm-hmm. it really does, it does. because there are interventions, but mm-hmm. you need to do these interventions while the brain's developing. And if you, you wait till a child is five or six or seven years old, it's too late. The average age of diagnosis in the U.S. is about six years. And so in other countries, it's even later than that. And, and if you, in the U.S., you want to, for example, at Duke, get an appointment with somebody to see a physician for that diagnosis, it takes a year. And so the concept here is put the child in your lap, you play a little video on the phone, and the front-facing camera actually watches the child's face, does facial recognition, and looks for how, how the child responds hmm. to the video. And they believe with a high degree of certainty that they can detect autism, and this study goes to prove that. And so not only could you do the diagnosis and screening, the interventions are largely activities that you would do to help develop the brain, and you could actually deliver the therapy and treatment over the phone. When we met with psychiatrists who are specialists in this area, they said in in Africa, what they told us is there are 55 people in all of Africa that are trained specialists in autism to Mm -hmm. do this for a population of over a billion. And so the power of taking smartphones into that region and having an impact on people's lives in terms of their IQ and their social skills by intervening early on autism, that's the kind of thing that makes us get up in the morning. Yep. Yeah, and well, that's an exciting morning. Uh, you have a pretty big portfolio at Apple, and uh, I'd like you to just share a little of the work that you've been doing on the company's social responsibilities initiatives, the work that Apple's doing uh, not only here in the United States but around the globe. Yeah, we're, we're big believers that anybody involved in the process of working on an Apple product, they deserve to be treated with respect and dignity. And we've really decided that workers' rights are human rights, and we, we do a lot of work to make sure that, that workers are protected. And we still have a long ways to go, but we are training workers on their rights. We've trained millions of workers on their fundamental rights. Uh, We are bringing new levels of health and safety into regions, and it it extends well beyond Apple. Uh, We set up universities to help develop skills that train people on how to run safer factories. And, And let me tell you, no company wants to talk about child labor. They don't want to be associated with that. Apple takes a completely different approach. We we shine a light on it. Mm-hmm. We go out and search for cases where uh, an underage worker is found in a factory somewhere, and then we take drastic actions with the supplier, the upstream labor groups to try to make change, mm-hmm. and then we report it publicly every year. And we take a lot of heat for that. 
it's easier to, but we think the only way we're going to make change is to, to go hit it head on and talk about it. So uh, we're doing a lot of work in this space. We post that on our web. I, I don't know that a lot of people read it, but, uh, but if you go there, you'll see a lot of information about what we're doing and and I couldn't be happier. Great. Well, we've been speaking today with Jeff Williams, Chief Operating Officer of Apple. You can learn more about their work by going to apple.com or follow them on Twitter at Apple. Jeff, thank you so much for joining us today on Conversations on Healthcare. Thanks. It was a pleasure to be with you. At Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Hillary Clinton made a shaky claim about cost shifting in the December Democratic debate. She said that private insurance premiums have gone up in some states that didn't expand Medicaid because hospitals shifted their costs for providing emergency care for the uninsured. But we found no data to support that claim, and the idea that such cost shifting occurs is debated among experts. Clinton described the controversial concept of cost shifting, the idea that hospitals charge higher rates to those with private insurance to cover uncompensated costs for caring for the uninsured. The federal government does provide some payments to hospitals that treat low-income patients, but they aren't enough to cover all of the uncompensated care costs. Some researchers say this cost shifting occurs and others say it doesn't or doesn't occur on a large enough scale to make a significant difference in private insurance premiums. But we could find no research that shows cost shifting has led to increased private premiums in states that didn't expand Medicaid compared with states that did. It is the case, however, that uncompensated care costs are higher in non-expansion states than they could have been if those states had expanded Medicaid, a move that would have covered more of the uninsured. But it's still not clear that hospitals would shift such costs onto private insurers. Researchers with Northwestern University recently found that hospitals absorb nearly all of those costs, resulting in lower profits. A 2010 review of the available literature determined that cost shifting does occur, but at a low rate, and an Urban Institute analysis in 2014 found limited evidence to show an increase in the uninsured led hospitals to charge the privately insured more. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Cancer research can be long, laborious, frustrating, isolating. And often when research breakthroughs in treatment or pathology occur, they remain entrenched within their respective institutions for far too long before being shared with the broader clinical populations. Researchers at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine have launched a program to address that research fragmentation. They've created a new system that facilitates data and biospecimen sharing among cancer centers that may 
significantly speed cancer research findings from the laboratory to patient care. You know, one of the major problems is that the data is very siloed in information systems, often produced by vendors. And the other problem is that the data that is probably the most relevant, especially when you're interested in sharing and using biomaterials, the data that's most relevant is often in text. So not only is it locked away sort of within a vendor clinical system, but it's also in a lot of ways locked away in the text because it can't be processed by machines. Dr. Rebecca Jacobson, professor of biomedical informatics at Pitt School of Medicine and chief information officer at the Institute for Personalized Medicine, says the system they've created, the TIES Cancer Research Network, or TCRN, was built upon their development of an advanced data texting system that can easily share complex research data across a broad spectrum of users. With the TCRN, they can study rare diseases and rare behaviors of common diseases much more effectively because they can now aggregate and access data and biomaterials across multiple institutions that hasn't been logistically possible until now. Our software is combined with the legal agreements, the policies, the procedures that enable individual researchers at different institutions to be able to access data across the network And once they know that they have a sufficient number of cases, a collaborator at another institution, et cetera, then they can use the policies and processes that we've set up to be able to get a set of biomaterials from those institutions. They already have a number of partners connected through their TCRN Federation of Cancer Hospitals and are hoping to significantly expand their research scope to many more partners. The TIES Cancer Research Network, linking cancer researchers from around the country on a new sort of data and biomaterials sharing superhighway, aimed at getting researchers the breakthrough information they need to accelerate the path to cures. Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center.